Well, good morning. Now, I want to begin this morning by asking you if you are familiar with this phrase, this cultural axiom, pride comes before the fall. How many of you are familiar with that phrase? Okay. Well, for those of you who are not, you're going to be today. It's going to be great. Now, I want you to know that when you consider that phrase, I'm guessing that most of us, if we are parents, we have mentioned that to our kids a time or two. Or if we are adults and haven't done that with our kids yet, I'm pretty sure you can go back in your lifetime and think through that and say, yeah, I remember my parents telling me that. It is one of those phrases that is tossed around in our culture pretty consistently. You know, when you think of that phrase, I can think of no more real, no more visible representation of that than when it happens on the field of competition, the field of athletic competition. And then when you think of that, I think of one particular team, and it's a team that we knew and loved from a few years back. It's one of those teams that was somehow the underdog rises up knocks down that prideful team that kind of rolled into the championship all arrogant and puffed up and thinking that they're going to they're going to take it and not have really any challenge anybody remember the 2004 Detroit Pistons The 2004 Detroit Pistons were known as the going-to-work crew. They were the guys who brought their lunch pail to work, and they came up against a team with four Hall of Famers, two that you probably recognize by name, some guy named Kobe Bryant, another guy by the name of Shaquille O'Neal, Shaq. But they had two more guys who were also Hall of Famers. And yet it was the underdog... It was the going-to-work Pistons that rose up and defeated the mighty Los Angeles Lakers in 2004, and it stunned the sports world. All the experts fully expected the Lakers to win, likely in a sweep. Fans across the NBA thought, it's the Lakers, it's the Lakers, it's the Lakers. And certainly the Lakers themselves expected to win that championship. And what has been interesting since that time period, when you go back and you do some research or do some reading on that particular team, insiders will tell you that what the problem was with that Laker team was pride. At the root of their fall, at the root of losing to the Pistons was one thing, it was pride. You might say, Pastor, that is so good. That's great. I love that kind of trip down memory lane with the Pistons because we haven't had a lot of success recently. So I really appreciate that. But what does that have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with you, actually. Even though you didn't play for the Pistons, you weren't on the championship team, and you're likely not competing for an NBA title today, the reality is all of us, every single person here today has a propensity for pride. All of us. You see, most of us consider ourselves strong in some way when we're actually weak. We consider ourselves pretty wise when oftentimes the very thing we lack is wisdom. 
We consider ourselves safe oftentimes when we are walking on the cliff and it's very dangerous. We get there, we have those traits because we are filled with pride and sometimes we don't even know it. This is why the wisest man in the world at the time, a man named King Solomon, wrote these words. He said, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's from Proverbs chapter 16. And this is why pride is so dangerous for every single one of us here today. Here's one thing I don't want you to do is to tap your, the person you came with and say, this is their issue. It's our issue. And oftentimes it is our issue because what we do is we fail to examine our own hearts. We fail to examine where we are weak. We fail to examine where we need wisdom. We sometimes fail to examine if we are putting ourselves in danger. And so we're going to turn to God's Word today to see what it is that we can learn about pride and how it can mold us and shape us. But before we turn to God's Word to find out, Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have invited us here today, that you have brought us into this place that we might gather with our family, with our community, that we might gather to celebrate your goodness and your grace in our lives in spite of those areas of pride in our lives. God, today, over the course of the next half hour or so, would you meet with us through the power of your Spirit? Would you get us to a point where we might examine our hearts? That we might take an open-handed and open-hearted posture before you for your Holy Spirit to do your work through the teaching of your Word, God, because your Word is true. It's truth. And it truly provides everything we need to walk in faith consistently and humbly. So God, would you give us eyes to see this truth today? We ask for ears to hear this truth and then humble hearts before you. In this moment and in the week ahead, we ask, we plead for humility before you before your truth. Empower us now through the power of your spirit to walk in this truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, this morning we are continuing our sermon series. It is called Family, Why Bother? And we are examining the dynamics around the first family as detailed in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Now, last week, Nick came up and he helped us see how sin separates us from experiencing true family and true community. Today, we're going to look at a story that many of us will find familiar, but we're going to find some depth in the story that might challenge us as we examine the sin of one man and how that can have an impact on others on families and on communities alike. 
So Genesis 4 is our text, and we're going to be reading it in different segments today. Oftentimes I stand up here and I'll read the whole text at the beginning of the message. I'm not going to do that today. We're going to read in segments because there is a lot for us to unpack. We're reading the story of Cain and Abel, a set of brothers that many of us have heard the outcome of their interaction. But let's unpack the significance of what that means and why this story can teach you and me so very much. So let me encourage you to grab your Bible and turn with me to the first couple verses of the book of Genesis. It is Genesis chapter 4. You will find it on page 3 in your Bibles. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, a worker of the ground. This is the story of God's people, Adam and Eve. And immediately following their banishment from the garden, what do they do? They conceive a son, and his name is Cain. And they worship God because of his birth. Right there, we just, we just read it. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She acknowledges that he is a gift from Almighty God. That's Cain. And then as we just read also, their second child follows. Abel is born. But I want to be very clear. As we continue to read through this text, Cain is the main character. Cain is the primary focus of the chapter that we are going to be looking at today. Make no mistake about that. So let's dig back into the story. So in spite of this new setting... They've been banished from the garden. They are what would be called east of Eden. There's Adam and there's Eve, and they have high hopes for their children. Any parents in here today who would say, I have low hopes for my children. I really hope they don't succeed and they struggle in life. Anyone? I didn't think so. You see, Adam and Eve had high hopes for their kids. They saw them as a blessing. And remember, God had promised that Eve's offspring would actually crush the head of the serpent. So like all parents, like all of us here, they are hopeful for what will happen in the lives of their children in the days ahead. They're, they're really hopeful. They, they have dreams just like you and I have dreams for our kids. But sadly, things go south pretty quickly. Let's continue on in our text. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Remember, now he was a farmer. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And here's where it gets interesting. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. The text tells us that Cain was very angry and his face fell. It's a pretty straightforward point, isn't it? 
I mean, really, as we read this story, it's pretty clear to understand that we have two brothers. One brings an offering to God and it is accepted. Another one brings an offering to God and it is not received. It is found unacceptable. Before we go any further, we have to consider this question, don't we? I'm guessing that some of us are sitting here going, okay, well, wait a second. Why did that happen? Why did God accept one and not the other? Does God like animals better than plants? He created them both. Does he prefer shepherds to farmers? He has an affinity for shepherds. Not really a big fan of farmers. Is that true? Truth is, Genesis does not tell us why God gives favor to one offering and not for the other one. It's not found in the book of Genesis. But I have good news. It is found in later portions of Scripture. This is why the full counsel of God does matter in our lives because God speaks through a pair of New Testament authors. Let's find it in Hebrews chapter 11. Here's what it says. By faith, Abel, he offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain did. We knew that already through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith he died, though he still speaks. That's Hebrews chapter 4. So what we see from that little glimpse in Hebrews is the fact that, that Abel brought something through faith. And then 1 John. 1 John highlights Cain's offering and how it is different than Abel's. It comes in 1 John chapter 3. Here's what John writes. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. We're going to get to that part of the story in just a moment. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So therein lies the difference. Therein lies the difference. To summarize, it was Abel's faith in God that made his sacrifice acceptable. It was Abel's faith. And this helps you and I see our first point today, that a failure in faith is actually the beginning, is the root of pride. To fail, a failure to practice faith is the beginning for you and I to experience and live out of pride. So let's first understand and grasp the proper interplay here between faith and action. That's one of those things that Christians can, can debate all day long. Is it faith first or is it action? Can you have one without the other? How is the interplay? Here's what we see. Abel believed God was worthy of worship. And so he offered him his best. He gave him the firstborn of his flock and the choice portions of meat. That's what Abel brought as an offering to God. Conversely, Cain did not believe that God was worthy of worship. So he offered whatever he could get away with. That's what he brought as an offering to Almighty God. A church at the heart of this story is something that you and I practice every time we buy a gift for someone we love. 
Every time you and I buy something for someone we love, typically I'm going to guess that most of us purchase something that has to do with their favorite team or their favorite company or their favorite brand. Maybe you buy something that connects with their favorite hobby. You know them and so you want to buy a gift for them that connects those things. Or perhaps you do this. Perhaps you run to the store the last minute and you say, I bet they'd like a pack of gum. I have this used baseball cap in the back of my car. Maybe I can get a gift card to the local fast food restaurant even though they never eat there. Do you see the difference? The difference is what happens in the heart. Our gift reveals a lot about our love for that individual. If I don't value you, I won't give you a gift of value. I'm going to say that again. If I don't value you, I'm not going to give you a gift of value. And this is true when it comes to matters of faith, too. As I was preparing this message, I was thinking about the different areas of our faith where this is true in terms of our practice. When we, when we gather in community, when we gather for worship, when we, when we live out our, the spiritual disciplines in our lives, I can think of no other experience that connects with the heart more than when we gather for worship. That when you and I gather in this place, We gather as God's people and we come to worship and praise and reflect upon the living God. This is not just some place that you walk in the doors on a Sunday, hear some cool music, see a few faces that you recognize, and then walk out the door again. This is a meeting that you have with the living God. He is the one who loves you so much that he gave his only son to die in your place. That's who you're meeting with. And in Jesus, God provides you things like forgiveness and grace and mercy and redemption and restoration. That's why we come to worship. And this is why when we come, we should have a humble heart. We should have a mind that is engaged. We should have hands that are ready to serve. And here's what I'm going to say. Every single Sunday that should be true. I know we walk through difficult things in our lives. I'm not trying to brush those things aside, but we have one hour every week where we should put aside the things of life and enter into our time with the living God and offering Him our praise to meet with Him, to hear from Him, to commune with Him. That's why we're here. To offer praise to our great God. Now, pridefully, when we consider Cain, he wanted to give God less than his best. 
He wanted to give God something else. He wanted to give God a little something and then receive all of that stuff from God. Now, I want to stand before you today and say, I don't want to confuse this. God is not some vending machine where we put in a few things, we pull a lever, press a button, and then we get what we want. But that's kind of the idea that Cain had. Let's turn to the story, verse 6. And so the Lord said to Cain, remember his face has fallen. He says, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. So far, Cain has offered an unacceptable sacrifice, and he's let his pride grow into anger with God, and that is why his face fell in this moment. And it is in this moment, once again, that we see the loving, gracious heart of God. That's why God asks Cain that question Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Like a good father. What God is doing in this moment is he is addressing Cain's anger and he's addressing his pride and he is doing so with kindness and with grace. That should encourage every single one of us, even in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our anger, in the midst of our pride, God deals with us graciously. But there's also a warning. He warns him that if his pride and his anger grow, it will bring him to the point of destruction, like that of a wild animal ready to leap on its prey. Church, this helps us see the second of our three points today. The more pride equals the more sin. The more pride grows in our hearts, the more sin it is that we practice and that we experience and that we live out and that we give into. And that's exactly what we see unfold in verse 8. Here's what it says. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in a field... Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. I do not know. Am I I my brother's keeper? Pride led Cain to murder his brother. And now in this moment, what we see is it keeps him from coming clean before God with a heart of repentance. He doesn't come clean before God. Instead, what he does is he tries to shift the blame. Don't put your energy on me. Don't put your focus on me. I want you to focus over here. That's what often happens in our lives, isn't it? When we are confronted with by someone about our sin, we either ignore it. Maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting us of something. We, we try to act as if it never happened. Or then maybe we go to that next step and we, we blame someone else. It's not my fault. 
Yet none of those things are the heart posture that God seeks from his people. Not ignoring it. Not acting as though it never happened. Not blaming someone else. None of them. Instead, what God desires is that we would humble ourselves before him. That we would have an open-hearted, open-handed posture to be real to be authentic before a holy God. Church, this is why we read over and over again throughout the Scriptures of the importance of confession. Through the importance of acknowledging our sin, acknowledging where it is that we struggle. I think of 1 John chapter 1. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We talked about that earlier. We ignore it. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, that's our vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father. But pride can also get in the way of our horizontal relationships too. It impacts our horizontal relationships. And this is why James encourages something that many of us might find hard to practice. Here's what James writes. Confess your sins to one another. Whoa. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess and pray. Church, that is the sort of honest, authentic community that James desires, that James is seeking for all of us. And at the root of that community is genuine humility, which is the opposite of pride. And it's lived out. Not by yourself in a corner. It is lived out in the context of community, faithful and consistent community. This is why so often when you come here, we talk about the importance of life groups. Nick mentioned it last week. I'm going to mention it again this week because groups are the place where men and women get together. They're real. They're honest about what they're walking through. They pray for each other. They confess sins to each other. They talk about the struggles of what it means to walk in faith. Guys, being a believer today is hard. There's so many temptations that every single one of us face every single day. And so to do life in community where we confess our struggles, confess our temptations, confess our sins, pray for one another, that's how we get through. They might say, well, Pastor, it's kind of a weird time to be talking about life groups because most of them hit the pause button for the summer, and that is true. But that does not mean we're not forming new groups for the end of summer and for the fall. And so if you are here today and you are not in a life group, you are not, you do not have that kind of community, we desire that for you. We desire that for you, that you might walk in that type of community. Now, before we move on, I want to hit one more aspect of the fact that community can be intimidating. When the pastor says, hey, confess your sin, and then pray about it. 
I know that that might sound incredibly difficult. It might sound really hard to do. That you're saying, wait a second, I don't even know these people and I'm just going to walk in and start confessing my sin? Of course not. It's going to take a little time to build that trust. But the expectation is that you would get there. You would get there. But it is intimidating for all of us, myself included. And this is why I love what Jerry Bridges, an an author who wrote a book many years ago called True Fellowship. I think what he writes here captures where many of us might be in this moment. It says, we hesitate to expose our sin. We hesitate to expose our problem. But at the root of our problem, of course, is what? Pride. The fear of what another will think of us if he knows how we have sinned. Bridges writes, very likely the friend who you're meeting with and connecting with has the same temptation or at least another one that he is equally embarrassed about. Why? Because walking out our faith is difficult. We have to wage war against sin and the pride that comes with it. And the best way that you and I can do that is by shining a light on it, by exposing it. When we do, it takes away the power. When you confess sin or confess a struggle to a friend or a group of people, it takes away its power. Now, let's look at the final portion of our text, verses 10 through 14. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And so when you work the ground, remember, he is a farmer, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. That's uplifting, isn't it? You see, the effect of pride in Cain's relationship with Abel is clear. What he has done cannot be hidden. Faithless pride led Cain to murder his brother, and it will cause him to carry this massive burden on his shoulders and the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life. Cain, the farmer, is cut off from the soil. He's the firstborn, and so he's now cut off from the promise. And worst of all, Cain is now cut off from his family. He's a wanderer. And church, this helps us see the third and final way we recognize that pride kills relationships. Pride destroys our relationships. 
We see this throughout the life of Cain. As we've heard this story, it's just one aspect of pride after another, after another, and it destroys his relationship. So if you're keeping score, Cain's pride severed his relationship with God. That's where we read that it started. It drove him to take his brother's life. That's where the middle or the peak of the story, the crest of the story and then sin, motivated by pride, cost him his family and his community. This is why Cain cries out to God in verse 14. He says, I shall be a wanderer on the earth. I'm going to be a fugitive. Church, that's not a good place to be. As we hear the story of Cain, as we hear those points along the journey, the journey ends with him wandering and having no home and no community. Theologian by the name of John Golden Gate describes it this way. He says, Cain will become a drifter. It will mean dependence on what he can forage and steal and beg to stay alive. That is the life of Cain moving forward. Some of you are thinking, that's harsh. That is cold. That sounds absolutely awful. But the truth is, whenever there is a wanderer, whenever there is someone who is wayward, someone always has to carry their burden. Always. The burden is too much for them to bear alone. So I'm going to close with some good news. For those of us who feel at times like we're wandering, feel like the weight of our pride and of our sin is just too heavy, there's someone named Jesus who will carry your burden. There is someone named Jesus who, as you come to him in humility, whether you are a child, whether you are a young adult, a middle-aged person, or a senior, it does not matter whether you are a man, a woman, or a child, it does not matter. All who come to him in humility, who lay down our pride, who acknowledge our sin before a holy God, and then who repent of that sin and place their faith in Christ, those are the people who are redeemed, who find a home, who find a family, who find community. You see, Jesus is the one who redeems stories like yours and like mine through the love of God expressed in the grace of His Son Jesus, displayed in the power of of the Holy Spirit. So church, hear this. Pride does not have to come before a fall as long as pride leads us to repentance. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.